Sanitarium. We are talking about from season two, episode three. This one is entitled Tether. We start things off with Boyd checking out his cut arm in the bathroom mirror. He checks for worms again, but he doesn't see any, so I guess they only come out every once in a while. Boyd then talks to Alice and tries to explain where he was. Alice asks if he teleported, and Boyd says, I mean, no, but maybe? But it sounds crazy when you say that. Ellis asks where Sarah is, and Boyd says, I went through a tree, she claims she was right behind me, and then I was back here. Ellis gets upset and says that Boyd claimed he was going out there to find answers, or find a way home, and he found neither. Boyd asks why Ellis is so upset, and he says that it's Fatima. Something seemed to die in her last night. He says there is a part of people that they hold on to, and Fatima seems to have lost that. Boyd tells Ellis he needs to be that thing for Fatima. Boyd says they hold on to each other until they get home, and this place will not win. They proceed to hug, and Ellis feels a little better. He says he's going to go help Kenny with the traps, and Boyd tells him to go get someone else to do it. But Ellis says that while he's out there, he plans to pick some flowers that Fatima likes. Boyd understands and tells him to find her a new ring, since that wire one is a little lacking, and he's better than that. Ellis says he is glad Boyd is back, and we are all glad that these two have moved past their issues because they have a great relationship. Christy finishes sewing up Jim, and he tries to leave. Christy and Tabitha push him back down, and he is told he has three cracked ribs. Ethan says, uh, asks if Jim is okay, and Christy says that, uh, or asks, is Tabitha okay? Jim asks Julie and Ethan to give him and Tabitha a moment. Tabitha says that Donna told him that they could stay at Colony House, but she doesn't really want to do that. But then she notices that Jim has started to tear up, and says he thought she was dead. Tabitha apologizes, and Jim says he cannot lose her. So I guess that divorce is off. Tabitha kisses him and tells him that the wires are not connected to anything. So the only person on the show willing to talk about his experiences say that they have so much to talk about, which is true. They do have a lot to talk about to get on the same page. The two people that were going to have a divorce because they couldn't get over the death of their son and didn't communicate anymore are the only people actively talking to each other all the time. Tabitha says she will take the kids to the diner. They both say I love you, and they kiss. Donna tells Randall to drop the rifle he's holding as he is trying to get things off the bus. Boyd walks up and takes command. Randall asks who the fuck Boyd is, and Boyd says that residents here don't carry firearms. Randall says that rules change, and Boyd tells him, you know what? If you don't like the rules, you can go ahead and take that rifle, and you can go live in the forest, and you can try to survive without a talisman. But if Randall wants a roof over his head at night, when those things come out to hunt, then you should put the fucking rifle down. 
and listen to Donna. Randall drops a gun and calls Boyd an asshole, which Fanny Pack rolls her eyes at him. The bus survivors are then taken to Colony House. Again, it's another moment where you look at Randall and you go, eh, okay, but also, like, he feels, having a gun of his own, that he can protect himself and other people. So there is still that, like, part of him that is trying to help other people. He's just going about it the wrong way. Tabitha gets food for Ethan and Julie and peeps out the wreckage of their former house. She asks Julie to eat something, but she at first refuses. So then Tabitha puts a bowl of fruit in front of Julie, and she does start to eat. Ethan asks if they can go and see Victor. He hopes that Victor's not mad at him, since he and Jade went through Victor's room. Ethan asks if they're going to get their stuff back, since Norman is still down in the house. Tabitha goes to talk to Tien. She asks her if she can go get uh, some things out of the storage area, because they, all of their clothes and items were in the house. Tien tells her they can stay with her, Kenny, and Jade. Donna tells Boyd that they will have to start getting serious about rationing their supplies. She says that there were 25 people on the bus, but only 22 have been accounted for. There are still three people missing. Donna says that she dealt with a busload of terrified people by unloading a shotgun. And Boyd says that, if that they were going to lose people, but she should be happy with the ones they saved. Donna asks if Boyd is going to talk about what happened out in the woods, and of course he won't. So, thinking about this number. So, 22 people accounted for. I'm going to see one person in this episode here. It's hard to determine if Donna is including Elgin in the 22 that are accounted for, or if he is another person that is unaccounted for, because Boyd just sort of walked up here, so it's possible that she just hasn't met Elgin yet. So if that's the case, that means there is still one person unaccounted for. Kenny and Alice, who are best friends in real life, by the way, get to share a scene together, which, whenever you have ensemble casts like this, you usually get these sort of random pairings that don't really interact much. Obviously, we see it on Yellow Jackets a lot. There are characters on that that don't share scenes with each other, don't really get to talk to each other. So it's always cool to get some of these new scenes. Now, Kenny and Alice did have a few scenes in the first season, but we haven't really gotten too much with them because obviously Kenny lives in town, Alice lives in, lived in Colony House, but now they're a little bit more back together. Alice is picking flowers while Kenny says he cannot find the rod that they used to hold up the animal trap. He asks Alice to stop picking flowers and actually help him. Alice says that he knows Kenny is probably upset about Christy, but he offers to talk with him about it. But Kenny doesn't want to. Off in the distance, the song Wake Up Little Susie can be heard playing. Ellis and Kenny run to find that a phone is lying on the ground playing the song as an alarm sound. They then find Kelly sitting next to a tree, and the missing trap rod is shoved through her forehead and into the tree. Yikes. Kenny turns off the alarm, and he says that they have to get her back to town and bury her. Ellis asks why they would do that, but then Kelly gasps awake. Ellis tells Kenny to run and get Christy, and Kelly asks for help. So this is new. 
because now we do know that the creatures do like to fuck with these people a little bit. They have done things before, you know, obviously the the tricking uh, Kevin into opening the window and making out with him, ripping his tongue out. They've done things like that before where they've just screwed the people. As we've seen, like, they tear people apart. They do, like, eat their internal organs or do something with their internal organs. I don't know if we've ever seen it eat them. They didn't touch this girl other than jamming a rod through her brain. So they just left her out there like this. They didn't tear her apart like they could have. And I guess it was just so that eventually someone would find her, which of course that happened. But it seems really cold-blooded to just leave her out there and obviously not finish the job because she's alive. Now she's not going to make it because she's got a big fucking rod through her head and they have, you know, zero surgeons, but she's alive right now. So, Victor arrives back in town, and he finds his room torn apart. He is distraught and looks under his bed, but something of his is gone. Clara says that she's glad that Victor is back because they lost a lot of people. Victor asks who was in his room, and she tells him Jade and the Matthews boy. So he runs off. Jade is playing a violin in the living room. Victor hears the music as he approaches Tien's house and violently knocks on the door. Jade opens it and says, oh, it's great that Victor's back. He's got a lot to talk to him about. Victor tells him the violin is his. Jade asks to play it for just a little bit longer, but Victor screams at him to give it back to him. Jade does, and Victor says not to go into his room again. He then fucks off, so Jade grabs a journal and chases him down. Jade finally gets Victor to stop and shows him the the symbol. He then shows him the Polaroid of the guy and, of course, young Victor. Jade says this could be the key to getting the hell out of here, and after all this time, doesn't Victor want to go back home? Victor says stay away from him, and he walks off. Jade says, well, fuck you too, and then he instantly regrets it. Here's the deal. What does Victor have to go back home to? Victor doesn't have a home to go back to. He doesn't know anything from the outside world for the past 40 to 50 years other than what has come through town. So he doesn't know a lot of things that have gone on in the world other than what he might have picked up here and there from people, but he doesn't know how to drive. He doesn't have a family left. His mom is dead. He doesn't have a like a house to go back to because that's long gone. And I would assume he's probably legally dead at this point because he has been missing for a long time. So does he want to leave? I don't know that he does. Like, this is his life at this point. It would be stranger for him to not have everything going on around him like this. Christy finds Mary, and she is touching a rock that she gave to Christy. Christy explains it's faded since she kept it with her every day in sweaty palms. She says she likes Mary's new hairstyle and that they can make it through this together. Mary says maybe she should stay with the others since people died last night. And here's this rock just sitting on the nightstand like Christy had back at home. And she's acting as if nothing crazy happened and nobody died. Kenny runs in to get Christy and she tells Mary that she has to go, but she loves her. Kenny makes a sad puppy dog face at this. 
but they do walk right off. Kelly then tells Ellis that doesn't hurt, which is weird, but she can no longer see due to the brain injury. She asks if Ellis is still there because he had stopped talking, and they exchange names, and Kelly asks where they are. Ellis tells her that they're in the woods outside of town, which it takes her a moment to remember exactly what happened. We then get a flashback to Brian opening the door and letting in two of the creatures. One of the creatures is the dude who asked Julie if she recognized him, and the other is a woman with a uh, um, short haircut. She says Brian was screaming as they made her watch them kill him. So I guess we can count Brian as one of the bodies found, since he doesn't seem to be around them. They don't ever mention his body, so I'm going to say that Kelly is one of three people missing. So that leaves us with two more missing, potentially one if Elgin wasn't counted in that. Christy and Kenny arrive, and Christy takes a look, and Kelly asks, is it bad? I mean, you can't see anymore. It's probably not good. Jim sees the exit sign flicker. There is a town name on the outside door, but it's too faded to really see, but it says maybe West Falls? I don't know that that's important, but it would be cool to actually give a name to the town other than just calling it Frumville. Jim grabs a chair and starts to fiddle with the exit sign as Fanny back arrives. She asks about Christy, and Jim tells her that she had to run out. Fanny Pack is clutching her fanny pack. She says that Brick sat across from the aisle of her after she recognizes Jim. Jim asks where she was headed. The woman says she was heading to the racetrack to bet on the ponies. She's been visiting racetracks all across the country, and Jim asks if it was a charter bus, but she doesn't know. Jim asks what she has in the bag, and the woman says he asks a lot of questions. Jim says he just has one more question, but then he collapses on the ground. Mary runs in to help, and Jim asks who the hell she is. They help him sit down, and Mary goes to find an aspirin. Fanny Pack says it's crazy that, Mar- that Mary wound up here and found her fiancé lives here. Jim takes this bit of information in. So, quick theory on Fanny Pack. So this woman is carrying around a fanny pack, uh, something in it. I know I've seen some people say that maybe she's stealing talismans. I don't think so. She's traveling the country visiting racetracks. And when she arrived here, she started dancing in the rain. Almost like she's just enjoying every moment of her life. Almost like she's possibly on the final journey of her life. I feel like her fanny pack is filled with medication. And she went to Chrissy to discuss her terminal illness. It would account for her trying to spend her final days happy, and for her traveling the country going to different racetracks. Like, that's bucket list things. So, uh, if she's now spending her final days of cancer or whatever other illness is going to slowly kill her, now in a town that literally has creatures that are trying to kill you every night, it's a bad hand to be dealt. Elgin and Fatima walk around the colony house. She is his proxy and is tasked with showing him around. Fatima tells him, uh, takes him out to the Brundles after he asks if they have a lake or water around. He asks where the name comes from and she doesn't know. The name Brundle, commonly for horror fans, is from the fly. 
I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Of a fly or a man transforming into a fly slowly and puking up, you know, acid, but yeah, maybe. Fatima asks how he knew about the lake, and Elgin Elgin says he saw it. She's not shocked by this and says that people have all sorts of strange reactions to this place. It's like the place is calling out to them, but only some of them are listening. Elgin asks if people have theorized about it, and Fatima says, well, of course. We literally have subreddits all the time that talk about from and uh, theorize... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, that doesn't amount to anything because they're all stuck and nobody can tell them why anyways. Christy tells Kenny and Alice, even if they were in a hospital, this would be a 15-hour operation. Kelly isn't suffering right now, but that could change quickly. It's a miracle she's even alive to begin with, but the creatures are coming back tonight and they need to grant her mercy. Kenny asks if she has anything that she can give the girl, but Chrissy says she doesn't have anything strong enough that'll kill her. Kenny offers another solution, but Christy refuses to have the woman get a gun pressed to her head as her last moment. Kelly calls for her and asks if she's going to die. Chrissy tells her, yeah, you're going to die. Whew, that is a... That is heavy. The... I've seen, you know, some scenes like this before. Where you've got somebody who, you know, is like crushed between two cars and it's like, if you move the cars, you're going to die, that kind of thing. Like, they've had these moments where somebody is only alive because something is preventing them from fully bleeding out or, and they have to kind of like make peace with the fact that there's nothing that can happen. You're just going to die. And while you're sitting here just fine talking to us, like, once we try to do something, you're gone. So, Julie argues that it's unfair that Ethan gets to play while she has to join Tabitha in finding clothing. Tabitha asks if she really would like to go play with some toys. Julie says it's creepy doing this, and Tabitha says it's no different than a thrift store. And Julie says it kind of is, since, you know, we know that the people are dead that wore these clothes. They head outside, and Tabitha stops. She's now able to see not just the one nearly bald female child from the jail cell, but that child is now joined by a nearly bald boy. They're both dressed in white clothes, like the boy in white, but they're filthy and a little torn up. The children hold hands and stare at her. Julie asks what happened, and as is tradition, she's told nothing happened. Boy then goes to talk to Abby. He says that somebody's getting married, but she probably knows that already. Boyd says maybe none of this is real. He says maybe Alice is sitting in a hospital bed begging for him to open his eyes. How could a man chained to a ball help you and be real? I do feel like the show tends to fuck with the viewers at times by giving not only evidence that can be used to craft theories, but also having characters discuss theories on a show. Having Wake Up Little Susie play helps you get like the feeling that maybe this is all a dream. Boyd sitting there and he's talking about the fact that he might be in a coma and this might be all in his head. We had a guy mention a pocket universe, the talk of aliens, talk of everyone being dead, and of course we've got a lot of time travel theories. All of this is really to keep people off the scent of what's really going on. And like any of those things could be the case, but the show is trying its hardest to make you believe that all of the theories are possible. Most of the theories, not all of them. Most of the theories are possible. 
Julie asks what happened to Tap at the back of the barn, and she begs her mother to talk to her. Julie says she spent the whole night in the diner thinking about how she would have to take care of Ethan by herself because Tabitha was dead and Jim was going to die soon. Tabitha admits that she saw something that wasn't there. And also, this wasn't the first time that's happened. She could still hear Thomas crying even after he died. She would see him there for just a moment when she went into his room. Julie asks if she saw Thomas outside. Tabitha says no. No, what I saw was two children standing on the road staring at us. And she says it didn't feel peaceful. So is this a situation where, like, the boy in white is a good version of these ghost kiddos and these two are the bad version? I mean, they certainly look alike. And, like, it certainly looks like they could be what the boy in white could become if he is corrupted. Kelly asks if Ellis is still sticking around. And Kelly says hi to Kenny as well. She says they are all nice, all so nice. She asks for her phone so she can call her mom to tell her goodbye. Chrissy says she has some paper in her bag that she can write down a letter to her mother. Kenny runs over and opens the bag, but of course there's no paper in there. So he just puts the bag back down and understands that this is just to put Kelly at peace. They know they probably will never see Kelly's mother again. Or ever. Kelly says to write down that she loves her and that she is sorry she didn't give her a hug. She was mad when Kelly left because Kelly and Brian had a fight. She then stops and asks what that noise is. And she starts to scream out in pain and Boyd walks up. So now did she hear him walk up? Did she hear the worms inside of him? Or whatever's going on with him? Or was it just her brain shutting down and Boyd just happened to be hanging around and hear her? I don't know. It definitely is one of those that could go either way. Boyd tells everyone to go back to town, but Chrissy says she isn't going to leave. Boyd then grabs the rod and yanks it out, killing Kelly. And Chrissy drops Kelly's hand onto her lap. Christy arrives back and begins to break down crying in front of Mary. She asks Mary to stay, and Christy cries in Mary's arms. So, maybe that's enough for Mary to realize that, like, if Christy could come back to her, she would have. She's not happy in this place. Like, she's disassociating a lot of it because she has to, but she still cares. Kenny says he's going to go to the church to see if Father Katri left something that they could say at the funeral for Kelly. Ellis tells Kenny that the creatures did this, not them. Ellis then arrives at the diner, but does not bring flowers with him because it was kind of a traumatic thing that they just went through. He sits down with Fatima. Fatima asks him to promise her it won't always be this way, and she gives him permission to lie. Ellis says that they should get married. They agree to wait until they got, get home, but he does not want this place to decide when they get to be happy, and Fatima says okay. She then seems to break out of her depression a bit and smiles and says, we're getting married. It's too bad they don't have that priest that they had before. Tabitha heads outside and joins Ethan on the porch, and he is putting together a wooden puzzle. The puzzle he's putting together is, I'm going to probably butcher this name, but Inukshuk. It's a Jenga-looking rocker wooden formation that looks like a person when it's done. Of course, this is the exact same thing that got knocked over in the tunnels before the creatures woke up. Ethan tells her that uh, he'll be careful, and then he finishes the puzzle. And Tabitha finally realizes it when she looks up.
and then she sees the two children are watching her from their yard. Tabitha grabs Ethan and brings him inside, and by his reaction, it doesn't seem like he's able to see the kids. Which, interesting, because he could see the boy in white, so I would have thought if anybody, he'd be able to see the kids, but I guess they're only showing themselves to Tabitha, and maybe they're not real, but they sure seem real. Donna is working on the greenhouse when she drops what looks like hail. She swears, and Boyd arrives. He tells her about Kelly, and then he says that Ella said she was with her boyfriend Brian. He then tells a story about his first tour in Iraq. He was driving with a few guys from his unit in a jeep. They drove over an IUD, and it shredded the jeep to pieces. The first two guys were dead on impact. But a kid from Wisconsin, shout out, who they called Schmuckers because he loved jelly, was ripped in half but he was alive long enough to die in Boyd's arms. He was crying and he was begging, and this was the first time Boyd ever saw somebody die. He says the kid's name was Corporal Brian Kelly. That's a hell of a coincidence. Brian Kelly, when you literally had a Brian and a Kelly who were in a relationship together, and he directly killed Kelly. Now, obviously, it was mercy, but he still did it. Donna tries to stop Boyd, and he tells her that he killed the kid, and he's just standing there wondering how any of this can be real. But then he says he's got to go, and Donna says that he isn't allowed to just drop a load of shit on her and walk away. He is free to talk when he wants to, but she needs to know that he is back. When she tried to do what he does for the town, it went bad, and she needs him back as the leader. Kenny lights a lantern in Katra's church, and here's someone down in the basement. Now, of course, my first thought was, this is the missing person from the bus, and maybe they're going to kill Kenny? Or maybe they're going to, you know, something's going to happen with it? But no, Kenny pulls out his gun, and he is greeted by Sarah. So now we know where she has been hiding this entire time. It's been in Katri's basement. So Sarah's back, Boyd is dealing with some shit. We have a missing bus uh, member. And we've got creepy kids watching everything. It is all shaping up to be a bonkers rest of the season. But that's going to do it for us here. And I will be back again on Monday with a brand new fresh episode of From. Thank you for listening. And until then, bye-bye.